Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Danny, and I am back with another episode of the all-new, all-awesome podcast. Uh, it's good to be back. I was really excited that last week we had such a fun episode with uh, Adam Corenman and myself talking about The Last of Us Part 2. If you haven't heard that episode yet, uh, go back, listen to it, even if you haven't played the game. Um, it does have a lot of spoilers for the game, but if you're uh, interested, check it out. If you've played the game, you have to listen to it. Um, I was, I'm still uh, figuring out the best way to record a podcast with multiple people and get the audio to sound right. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Anchor, the platform I'm using, it doesn't make it super easy to record a podcast with multiple people and have it be high quality. Uh, it's all based around an app on your phone. So I'm, I'm still kind of learning the best way to, to do it. And hopefully I'll keep refining that process. Um, but if you have any tips, let me know. Uh, you know, message me on Twitter, whatever, because uh, I do want to keep doing more podcasts with other guests on the show. And so... Uh, I'd love to do it where where the sound quality is good also. Um, so with that being said, a lot to talk about this week. Um, a couple of quick topics I'll just mention. Um, you know, one big thing everyone's talking about, of course, is uh, Justice League, the Snyder Cut. And I did watch it uh, last weekend. And... Um, you know, I'm not going to go into detail about it because, um, you know, I, I think the short version for me is that um, I, I enjoyed the movie. I thought it was overall a stronger version of Justice League than the original version that we got. Um, because, if nothing else, uh, it gave us a complete story. And where the first one felt extremely patchworked and sort of Frankenstein together, uh, this one, if nothing else, you're getting the full Zack Snyder vision. You're getting uh, a lot of the story he, in he intended to tell. Uh, and so at the least, it all sort of makes sense, essentially. And, you know, there's no moments where it just feels like you've jumped from one person's movie to another person's movie, like you felt with the original version. Um, you know, it's obviously a long movie. It's four hours. There's a lot going on in it. Um, but I guess what I would say is, you know, I'm such a big DC Comics fan, as, as you can clearly pick up if you listen to the podcast. Um you know, for me, there one cool thing about DC is that there's so many different tones and interpretations and even specific characters like Batman or Superman or whatever um, have evolved over the years, uh, decade to decade, year to year, in a way that allows for different writer interpretations, different artistic interpretations. Um, it allows them to evolve with the times. It allows different voices uh, to sort of give their own spin. And that's why when you look at a character like Batman, we've seen everything from 
the goofy sort of uh, Kyoki Adam West version of Batman to Frank Miller uh, doing the grim and gritty Dark Knight Returns in the comics to uh, Grant Morrison doing a very surreal version of Batman to Denny O'Neill and, you know, the Dark Avenger uh, Batman to uh, the Christopher Nolan Batman. And so there's so many interpretations and Zack Snyder, you know, he's got his interpretation. He has a very specific sensibility that I think, you know, Zack Snyder is very much a devotee of sort of the late eighties world of, of comics where things got a lot darker and grittier and, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I think like for me, and I think a lot of people had the same experience that when you're, you know, 12, 13 years old and you've been reading, you know, maybe more kid oriented comics and seen the animated series around these characters. And then all of a sudden you discover, you know, Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns or Watchmen by Alan Moore um, or a lot of these, uh, you know, more R-rated sorts of comics, a lot of which came out in um, the the late 80s, that sort of late 80s period, um, where there was a lot of deconstruction, a lot of sort of uh, more mature interpretations of of those characters and a lot of those comics just blow your mind when you read them, when you're at that specific age, because all of a sudden it's like this forbidden dangerous thing of like, wow, Batman is swearing or, you know, uh, wow. And Watchmen, these superheroes are like having sex and it's crazy. And I've never seen anything like this before. And should I even be reading this? Um, and all of that is is great, and you know, uh, there's a certain rite of passage, I think, as like a young teenager reading those kinds of comics. Um, and a lot of the stuff holds up. You know, Watchmen uh, is still, to me, one of the greatest works of fiction ever written. Um, and Alan Moore is, you know, just wrote the hell out of it, and Dave Gibbons uh, drew the hell out of it. Um, but the reason that those kinds of comics work so effectively is because they're riffing on what is established canon. And so the Dark Knight Returns works so well because it's almost a what-if scenario for Batman. Watchmen works so well because it's this very uh, subversive, deconstructive uh interpretation of classic characters from the Charlton comics. Um, so it took characters like Blue Beetle and Captain Adam um, and these very sort of colorful, uh, you know, bright characters and put a very dark spin on them and, and reinterpreted them as Dr. Manhattan and Rorschach uh, and, and Night Owl and so on. Um, the problem is when those dark, edgy interpretations of the characters are your baseline for your mainline cinematic universe, it's not as effective to me. And I know some people love it, and to them that is the baseline. But to me, that's not what the baseline of DC Comics should be. 
and I'm basically I'm ready to move on to a different interpretation of DC for the big screen. Um, you know, the funny thing is too that I think the Marvel movies, the MCU, a lot of the tonal stuff in Marvel is actually more what traditionally I think of as DC, that sort of bright, colorful um, universe that really puts an emphasis on things like heroism and morality and uh, cosmic, you know, soap opera. And it's funny because I think Marvel historically, when you think back to Marvel Comics, Marvel was more the grounded, the gritty, um, the realistic. Um, and obviously, you know, there's a whole Jack Kirby influence to Marvel that did go to those cosmic places. But when you think about Marvel versus DC, historically, you know, you think about things like the X-Men, where they were ultimately kind of the grittier, edgier sort of universe versus DC was the more brighter, more optimistic universe. And we have not gotten that at all in the, in the recent movies. We've gotten the opposite of that. So I think DC, I would like to see them reclaim that a bit from Marvel. And there's been some amazing interpretations of DC, you know, going back to the 90s and 2000s, you had the Paul, Paul Dini and uh, Bruce Tim animated series. You had Batman the animated series and, and Justice League and Justice League Unlimited and the Superman animated series. And that whole DC animated universe, I mean, was just so perfect and so perfectly captured that spirit of DC that I don't know if it will ever really be matched um, in any other movie or TV interpretation. And then you do have some other recent examples. I mean, Stargirl is one that I've uh, sung the praises of for a while now, where that to me just feels like the most DC of DC properties ever. Um, and I absolutely love what that show has done in its adaptation of the comic book. And it's easily my favorite DC thing in a while. Um, so I'd like to see more Stargirl be the template, less you know, that that Zack Snyder sensibility that makes everything into sort of the dark, you know, Frank Miller version of of DC. And, you know, I was obsessed with The Dark Knight Returns when I was uh, a teenager, and I still am a big fan of it. It's not like I ever didn't uh, like it, and and it's not like I ever fell out of fandom with it. But again, like to me it's so effective as a Batman story because it is a riff on the Batman canon. It's not the Batman canon. So long story short, I, uh, I'm ready for some new DC voices uh, in the cinematic universe. I'm excited for things like Black Adam. Uh, I'm excited for future movies. I'm excited for future TV shows. And I hope that the only thing I will say is I do hope that DC continues to uh, try to have some sort of interconnected universe because 
I know it's a nightmare to create that from sort of a management and production standpoint, but I, um, you know, I think it's so rewarding if you can do it and do it well, like Marvel has done. And, you know, DC, as a DC fan, DC deserves that sort of big interconnected cinematic universe. And a huge part of what makes DC Comics so fun and what has made me a lifelong fan is the interconnectivity of that universe and the many different facets of it and the different, uh, you know, worlds within that world, so to speak. So I'm looking forward to what happens, but I hope they remain ambitious with the storytelling and with the scope of what they're trying to do. Um, even if they do go in some different directions versus what Zack Snyder was doing. So that's my thought on that. Um, and I will be right back with my picks of the week. All right. So I'm back with my first pick of the week. And this one is a no brainer. I've been very excited to talk about it for the last couple of weeks. And that is the new Marvel show on Disney Plus, uh, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Um, and it's funny because I think WandaVision maybe unexpectedly became such a pop cultural force over the last uh, couple months that I almost wonder if just by default, um, The Falcon and Winter Soldier um, feels like a little bit uh, less buzzed about, I guess. Um, and I think a lot of that, too, is just that WandaVision was so much about the mystery and it had that almost lost like uh, thing where every week there was so much speculation about what was really going on. And there were all sorts of fan theories and guessing. And Falcon and Winter Soldier is a much more uh, straightforward show. Um, it's less about any mysteries, more about just telling uh, a story that has some really good character building for these two characters that have been maybe a little underserved so far in the movies. And also doing some really interesting things with topics like race and militarization and a lot of um, topics that uh, are building off what we've seen in the Captain America movies as well as in some of the comics that the that that uh, the show is adapted from. Um, but so to sum up, I mean, I am loving the show after two episodes. Um, it definitely is just that straightforward, kick-ass action-adventure show that we've been wanting from Marvel um, that certainly I have really been excited for. And I mean, what's remarkable, what's remarkable about the show right out of the gate is, you know, given that this is just a big action adventure show, I think the question was, well, how is it going to compare to the movies? And the answer has been, you know, holy crap, this thing feels like a movie every week to the point where after episode two, I was actually very, um, like, it was jarring to me when the episode ended after, you know, 50 minutes or whatever, because I thought I was watching a movie for a while. I forgot that I was just watching an episode of a show 
because everything just felt so big and epic and movie like that I was almost tricked into thinking I was watching a movie. And I mean, the action in the show, you know, the first episode, the pilot opens with just this incredible action scene of the Falcon sort of, you know, having this incredible aerial battle um, that just is not just movie quality, but it's one of the coolest Marvel action scenes that we've seen so far, I think, in the MCU. And so the the bar for this show in terms of the action and production value and effects is just so high and everything looks so great and is so well directed. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Um, I mean, this really does seem to be fulfilling the promise of Marvel movie quality action adventure on TV every week as a weekly series, which is crazy to me. I mean, the fact that we're getting this is something I don't think fans would have imagined, um, you know, a couple of years ago. It was really a pipe dream, I think. And of course, we did have other Marvel shows, but I don't think there was anything that was just so seamless where it just felt like a movie quality uh, series, but just more episodic storytelling versus feature storytelling. Um, And, you know, I think the Falcon and Winter Soldier as characters are such great characters. Uh, The Winter Soldier has been a favorite character of mine in particular in the comics. And he has such an interesting backstory and there's so much to play with there in terms of Bucky being this character who is, you know, like Captain America from uh, sort of that era of World War II, but then, you know, was kind of programmed and uh, forced into being this assassin throughout the Cold War and now finds himself kind of reawakened in the present day but obviously has gone through this big big trauma and is trying to put some semblance of a life together and sebastian stan i mean just just killing it so far in the show um to me he's been the mvp so far uh there's so many interesting aspects to his character um so many different facets and of course chief among those is the relationship with Anthony Mackie's the Falcon. Um, and Anthony Mackie is also just killing it. And there's such a good sort of buddy uh, vibe between the two main characters. Um, you know, that sort of frenemy vibe and the writing has just been really, really sharp. The back and forth between the two characters really well done. And, you know, they've really in a short time just established that relationship and made you really root for the characters um, and yet enjoy seeing them uh, squabble and, you know, have have some, some tension between them. And, you know, with Falcon, I think they're also doing a really good job of examining that legacy of Captain America, you know, really just diving headfirst into some pretty big ideas like, could there be a black Captain America? Is that something people would accept? Um, and they're really going this interesting route with Wyatt Russell's character um, as sort of this replacement Captain America, um, who we know in the comics, uh, you know, is the character that becomes uh, the U.S. agent. Um, and Wyatt Russell, too. I mean, I've been a fan of him for a while now. 
I like the whole Russell family. In fact, obviously, uh, Kurt Russell is like just one of my favorite actors ever. And his son, uh, Wyatt, is just really great. And he definitely is sort of perfectly cast here as that sort of character who on the surface is like a good dude, you know, maybe not even that bad a choice to be the next Captain America, but there's something just off enough about him where you kind of hate him and want to punch him, uh, even though we haven't yet seen him do anything bad, but there's sort of that hint that there's going to be some problematic stuff to this character the more we find out about him. Um, and there's already some hints of that. So they're, they're building a really compelling narrative and sort of character dynamic here. And I also really loved them introducing in the second episode, uh, the great actor, Carl Lumley, who, um, you know, has done a lot of superhero stuff before he was the voice of the Martian Manhunter in the old justice league animated series, um, among other things. But, you know, they're sort of adapting a comic storyline where uh, Carl Lumbly is playing a character who was sort of a prototype Captain America, um, but in the tradition of real life things that happened, uh, like the Tuskegee experiments, he was sort of as a African-American somewhat, you know, mistreated and never given a, a chance to be a hero. Um, and so there's a lot of really interesting social issues to, to look at here. And I think it's a great, um, you know, it's a great moment, it feels like, to sort of really dive into these issues. And, you know, we see it reflected in the current hero landscape where, look, a lot of these characters are adaptations of comic books from you know, the, the thirties and forties and fifties and sixties, um, where there weren't a lot of black characters and there weren't a lot of diverse characters and it doesn't make captain America, Steve Rogers, a bad character. He's one of the most iconic, you know, most beloved superheroes ever, both in the comics and in the movies as played by Chris Evans. Uh, but I think there's still something worth examining of, you know, why is Captain America by default a white blonde guy uh, named Steve? <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you were creating Captain America today, what would that look like? Um, so there's a lot of interesting questions there. And again, I think the show is just really setting up a lot of very uh, well done, well crafted, thoughtful, thematic uh, through lines with with what they've done in just the first two episodes. And I mean, we haven't even gotten to Daniel Bruhl as Zemo yet. We know he's coming and I, I'm very excited for that. I can't wait to see that classic comic book mask of Zemo finally uh, in live action. I remember as a kid, I had a... Uh, a Marvel action figure of Baron Zemo in that pink costume where he looks sort of like an evil Spider-Man almost. And uh, I always thought he was so cool looking. And so I'm very excited to see that in live action. Um, and Daniel Brühl, of course, is always great 
Um, and we haven't really seen Emily Van Camp yet as Sharon Carter. So that will be exciting when she uh, sort of enters the fray. Um, but yeah, I am just really digging the show so far. You know, it definitely gives me uh, some vibes just in terms of the pure sort of action and intrigue of things like 24 and uh, and other, you know, just pure action adventure shows. But again, there is really good character dynamics at play. There's really cool and interesting thematic territory that the show is exploring. So it feels like Falcon and Winter Soldier is just the, the full package. Um, and it's it feels like everything you could want in a Marvel show. Um, you know, I, I do look forward to more shows that are a little weirder, a little more boundary pushing in the vein of WandaVision. Um, and I hope that we get more like that. And I think we probably will get some of that with things like Hawkeye, assuming that it sort of has some of the tone of the Matt Fraction comics. Um, you know, Loki is going to be interesting, but you know, if you just want straight up Marvel, you know, action adventure, superhero adventure. I mean, Falcon and Winter Soldier is totally delivering. Can't recommend it enough. And uh, I'm really excited by it so far. So out of the gate, Marvel is two for two with its Disney Plus shows. So well done to them. And uh, if you're not yet on board with this one, get your Disney Plus subscription going and check it out because it's really, really good. All right. So, you know, I've talked a lot about the Oscar race and uh, I don't know. I don't know if any movie has really like gained a lot of ground in the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, I think we have finally seen in the last week uh, the father come out for digital rental. And so I'm curious as more people watch uh, that movie, will it gain a little more buzz? Although it already seems like potentially a favorite in the best actor category for Anthony Hopkins. So uh, I am curious to watch uh, the father soon. I think in the next uh, couple weeks, I will give it a uh, shot. And um, that being said, I did watch uh, another Oscar nominee finally uh, the other weekend, which was uh, the United States versus Billie Holiday, which uh, I was really curious to check out. I, I feel like I didn't know a lot about Billie Holiday. Obviously, her name was very familiar to me. A couple of her songs were sort of known to me, but I didn't know much about her. And the story of this movie, if nothing else, is is extremely crazy and fascinating. This, you know, the, the basic premise, which is that it follows sort of a period where Billie Holiday had already established herself as one of the most popular musicians in America. Um, and, you know, people really loved her song. She was getting played everywhere and uh the one caveat to that though is that she had this one song called uh strange fruit um which uh you know was was a song that was about lynching 
and was an anti-lynching song and really spoke to um, the the injustices that were happening in the country at the time and the racism and the violence and, and the just atrocities that were being committed against uh, African-Americans during this time. And, you know, the movie sort of goes into how the FBI actually took an interest in Billie Holiday and saw her as someone who was subversive and potentially dangerous. And they actually send an FBI agent who happens to be black to kind of follow her and report back on her. Um, And then that FBI agent actually develops a very strange relationship with her, this sort of love-hate relationship where, you know, even once she knows that he is trailing her and, and, you know, following her for the FBI, there is an attraction there. And she knows that he, um, you know, does have sympathy, like a sympathetic view to her and, you know, is protecting her in a lot of ways. And so there's a very interesting dynamic there. Um, and even as that is happening, you know, there's a, a, a parallel story of Billie Holiday just falling deeper and deeper into drugs and addiction and really having some tough times. And that's sort of tied in with the FBI investigation because they're hoping to maybe use the drug stuff as a way to sort of take her down and take her off the board, so to speak. So really interesting, fascinating real life story there. Um, now the movie is directed by Lee Daniels and, you know, I think if you know Lee Daniels, you know that he is not a subtle guy per se. He really likes to hit you over the head with, uh, you know, very melodramatic moments and, um, you know, big moments and big performances. And, uh, no, you know, not that there's anything inherently wrong with that per se, but just know going in that that's sort of what you're getting. Um, but I think to that point, uh, the clear, I think, standout of the movie is Andre Day playing Billie Holiday. And it's no surprise that while the movie itself didn't get a lot of awards nominations for the Oscars or Golden Globes, Andre Day uh, you know, won a Golden Globe and is nominated for Best Actress at the Oscars. And again, she's really just the show stealer here. She's the story. She just knocks it out of the park and really puts her heart and soul into this performance as Billie Holiday. Um, and, you know, just really kills it. And, you know, her, her performances of the music are great. Um, her just overall inhabiting of this character is really a sight to behold. So it's certainly an awards-worthy performance from her. And I would say that, you know, I would recommend the movie if only because of how good she is in it. Uh, and But, you know, I did like the movie overall. Like I said, I thought it was a really fascinating film. Uh, you know, it, it does um, sort of indulge in some of the drama and it has some scenes that are a little bit um, much, I guess I would say, 
But overall, again, I liked it. I really enjoyed it for Andre Day's performance. Um, there's some other good performances in the film. Uh, but again, I would just really single her out as sort of the MVP by far of the film. <clears throat> so it'll be interesting at the Oscars. Um, I still think of it a little bit like, you know, almost like the NBA All-Star game where it's like, uh, I, I give the MVP to the winning team. So like I would give, I guess, the slight edge to someone like Frances McDormand in Nomadland because I would say she's about equally great as Andre Day. Very different performances, obviously. But at the end of the day, I think Nomadland is the better film. So I go with Frances McDormand. Um, and I wouldn't say that's always the case. It's not a hard and fast rule. I mean, if someone really just absolutely destroys in a movie then then you know sometimes they are more deserving i think but if all else is sort of equal i give the the award to the better movie so um i still think nomadland is probably the favorite for best picture and several other categories best director maybe best actress but it will be interesting i think it will be a bit of a battle there and andre day from billy holiday will certainly be right up there as as somewhat of a front runner after the Golden Globe win. So yeah, check out the United States versus Billy Holiday. I know there's also a Billy Holiday documentary that came out recently. Um, I'm curious to sort of go back to that and now fill in some more of the gaps in in terms of what her life was like and what her earlier uh, days of her career were like. Um, so very curious there. And just a fascinating figure, and, and Andre Day really brings her to life in a compelling way. So check out the movie. It's on Hulu, uh, so you can check it out if you've got Hulu. And yeah, it's going to be interesting. I am looking forward to the Oscars and seeing how this one, as well as several other movies, do. All right, so... My third and final pick of the week. So this is one, you know, I mostly try to talk about pretty recent stuff in my picks of the week. Uh, but there is obviously a ton of stuff out there. There's a ton of content. Um, and we all have our list of things that we want to go back to and uh, watch. And we all have our friends or family just constantly telling us, like, you got to watch this show. You got to watch that show. Um, so... One show that many people have been telling me that I have to watch for a while was Pen15. And I tend to really like a good uh, coming-of-age comedy. Uh, and it did seem like, some, like uh, a show that was right up my alley. And I had been meaning to watch it for a while, just hadn't got around to it. And I finally had a little bit of an opening, I guess, in my uh, in my TV watching schedule. And I'm like, all right, I'm finally going to get to this one, Pen15. Um, I had been wanting to watch it for a while. So I have now seen the first five episodes of Pen15. And, oh, man, I already love this show. And I kind of knew I would just based on what people had told me. But... It's just such a perfectly done 
series in so many ways and it's so funny and it's so uh my type of awkward cringy humor which i love um and it's just such a, a spot-on view of middle school and what it's like to be that age um so if you don't know uh pen 15 it's on hulu it's a hulu original series and it's created by um maya erksein erksein uh anna conkle and sam zilva uh i'm not sure how to pronounce this sam zweibelman i'm gonna say uh but in any case uh maya and anna are kind of the two stars of the show and they are i believe now in their late 20s or early 30s in real life but they're playing the middle school versions of themselves and they do such a great job of it and it's so funny uh it works so well and you know they interact with other actors who are actually the right age for those characters. So it's them and a bunch of actual kind of middle school age actors, but they're so good. And part of the humor of the show is that when you see someone in their twenties or thirties playing a middle school character, it draws so much attention to the way they're playing the characters and they still brilliantly kind of recreate the mannerisms that you tend to have people tend to have when they are that age of you know 13 14 uh and just little things like facial expressions and ways of talking and ways of being of physically being you know the way that they do it it's just so brilliantly done and it's so funny and um and and the writing on the show and just the overall situations that the two girls get into you know basically they're sort of two like best friends joined at the hip they do everything together but then a lot of the episodes at least that i've seen so far you know the first episode immediately sets up like they're inseparable best friends and then every episode subsequent to that because of the changes that they're going through and the situations they're finding themselves in, their friendship constantly gets tested by just all the typical, you know, middle school BS that everyone goes through. And again, it's just such a spot on uh, depiction of what it's like to be that age. I think the, the main girls are probably a little bit younger than me. But it's still, you know, the recreation of, like, the show uh, is sort of, like, early 2000s of them being in middle school. And I was in middle school more, like, uh, you know, mid-90s, I guess. Um, so there may, it's maybe five years later. But still, like, just the trappings of that time uh, do ring so true uh to that era and it's funny because i don't think we've seen a lot of sort of like 2000s nostalgia yet um but it's you know a time that if you're in your 20s or 30s now it's a time that's very uh formative for a lot of us 
And so it's very entertaining to see that era sort of brought back and you know, recreated in a show like this in such a loving way uh, and in such an often funny way. Uh, and there's a lot of like early internet jokes and a lot of, you know, AIM jokes and things like that that are just really funny. Um, a lot of, you know, references to the pop culture from that era. And at the end of the day, though, it's just such a good depiction of middle school. And just, I think this is similar to Big Mouth, which is another favorite show of mine, where I think the only way to do a show like this full justice is to make it just kind of gross and, you know, uh, raunchy in, a, in its own weird way and just holding nothing back. Because if you think back to those years of being 13, 14, everything is just like exaggerated and super dramatic and scary and gross and there's changes happening and you don't know what's going on. And this show just captures that perfectly. And obviously like I'm a guy, I don't, you know, I didn't have the same experiences as these girls, but it's the same general uh, emotion in a lot of ways and, and just sense of like dread and um, awkwardness and, you know, all of that, that everyone at that age feels that's, that's very universal and it's captured so well uh, in the show. And I, and again, like I think about, for example, Anna Conkle playing, you know, again, like a younger version of herself, just little things that she does, like, you know, she wear her character wears braces in the show and the way she sort of physically transforms herself to have the mannerisms that you associate with like a 13 year old girl. It's just so funny uh, and spot on the way she does. She captures that and the way she talks and like the little things she does and the way she interacts with Maya I think Maya is almost Maya is like the character who's almost more just in her own world. And so for her, it's less about acting a specific age. She's, she's sort of like almost wise beyond her years or like beyond her, just beyond her years versus Anna is the one who's more specifically just feels like this is exactly channeling the energy of like a, a 13 year old girl. Um, so the dynamic between them is, is fantastic and they're just like a perfect yin and yang for each other. And it's just such a great fully formed comedic duo where again, I'm only five episodes into the show, but it feels in some ways like I've been watching it forever because it's just such an instantly fully formed, fully developed, uh, pairing that works so well together. And I think obviously the the two leads have had that history together in real life as a comedy duo and, and partnership, but they're just so, so good together um, and so funny together. So Pen15, if you haven't seen it, I cannot recommend it enough. I feel mad at myself that it's taken me so long to get to it, but um, I have to be careful because this is the kind of show, like I'm not usually a big binge watcher where, 
I really try not to just sit down and spend like four hours watching one show at a time. But this is the kind of show I could easily, if I wasn't careful, just watch the whole thing in one sitting. So it's almost painful to have to dole it out, you know, and watch one a day or, or whatever. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of doing that through a mix of uh, wanting to and necessity just in terms of time management. But loving the show. Can't wait to see the rest of it. But I will be I can already tell I will be very sad when it's over. Um, and so I know there's more on the way. Looking forward to that. And hopefully I'll be more current when when the new episodes finally come out. So Pen15, great stuff. Cannot recommend it enough. Check it out on Hulu. And that's all I've got for this week. Uh, I'll be back with a lot more next week. I'm going to watch uh, Kong vs. Godzilla uh, or Godzilla vs. Kong, whichever one it is, uh, this weekend. So I'll, I'm sure I'll be talking about that. Um and a lot more to come. So stay tuned. Thank you for listening. And I will be back next week.